Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Okay, I think it's one o'clock. I think we're going to start. Welcome, everybody. We do hope we've got some practice managers and their nursing team colleagues with them um, today too, because we've got two particularly um, particular items: one on um, the national standards of healthcare cleanliness, and one on flu. So we just hope they'll be they're very much a sort of team approach. But obviously, the practice manager and the and the nursing teams are sort of. Um, really sort of pushing these things forward. So just gone off screen, actually, I'll just introduce you to uh, Michelle. She's popping back now. Um, <laughs> Michelle Lombardi, are one of our directors of primary care. We've got Dawn Childcraft, our deputy director of primary care. Zoe Tobin, our nurse advisor, and um, my name's Louise Greenwood, and I am the director of education and training. So our first presentation is on cleanliness, and we've got a guest speaker, Connie Timmins, who we're absolutely delighted has come to join us. And we hope this has been really useful for you, but we will chat afterwards about the timescales, what you have to do and when you have to do it, because we know that's really, really crucial. But if you can just listen to the presentation first, then we will have that discussion. Um, and as we always do, we will be completely open about what we know at the moment, what we think might happen, because some of it obviously is not completely sort of um, fixed in stone at the moment. So um, just we'll settle back and listen to Connie, but I'm going to hand over to Zoe, who's going to introduce her. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks, Louise. Um, hi, everyone. Yes, yeah, so obviously, the National Standards of Healthcare Cleansiness, still a very hot topic in um, IPC land, um, and lots of practices probably still having many questions around the standards themselves. So as Louise has said, we are kindly joined by Connie today, who's um, IPC lead nurse for um, BSWICB, and she's going to give us a nice overview of the standards and hopefully answer some of those questions that you might have. Um, and we are also working quite closely and, and in contact with other IPC leads for each ICB for the regions. Um, and obviously, if you'd like any of their contact details um, and you'd like to talk to them directly, then get in contact with us in the usual way and we can give those to you. So I'll hand you over to Connie. Hi, everyone. So I'm just going to share my screen. And it's lovely to see so many familiar names pop up in the attendees list. So um, quite a few few of you um, have probably known me for probably far too long. So hopefully you can see my screen now. Um, Zoe, if you could just give me a nod to say yes. Not can. yet, Connie. No, uh, share. I have to click share, don't I? There we go. Hopefully now. Are we yeah, all... that's good. That's good. Fabulous. Brilliant. And, then, and just say any questions, if you do have them, if you just put them in the Q&A box, that would be really helpful. And then Zoe will just pick off the questions to ask Connie as uh, either as we go through or at the end. Um, but just pop them in the Q&A box. That would be really helpful. Thank you. So um, the National Standards for Healthcare Cleanliness 2021. So these were published um, last year in April 2021. Um, and they are a complete review of the um, sort of NHS cleaning standards from 2007. So they were a long time coming, um, really. And they kind of went on a little, they kind of were published not to a great fanfare. So they kind of hid in the shadows for want of a better way of saying it for a while. Um, and um, our acute trusts are sort of leading full force in implementing these at the moment. Um, but it's a little bit of a different story for primary care, care homes and our ambulance trusts. Um, so they apply to all healthcare environments, as I've kind of just outlined, really. And, and as I said, they, they replaced the, spe the specs for cleanliness from 2007. They're really 
sort of aim of the new standards is to encourage continuous improvement, much like we would do with any quality improvement we would do within healthcare. Um, And they combine mandates, guidance, good practice, recommendations, latest evidence-based research, um, and kind of act as a benchmark for all organisations, which is something we haven't really had before with the cleaning standards. And the aim really is to put the patient at the centre of of it all to ensure that anybody who uses our services in any aspect of NHS care um, has the same cleanliness standards throughout their journey. Um, It's a much easier way of monitoring your performance and auditing it. um, And you would have heard, I think the hot topic around them is this star rating. Um, And I'll get onto a little bit about that um, later on in the presentation and pick up a couple of queries about that. But um, that's kind of where the visitor satisfaction, the patient satisfaction around the environment kind of comes from is around those star ratings. And very similar to way in which hygiene star ratings are on a takeaway um, and that's kind of where that idea came from for these but again I'll get on to star ratings in a minute because they they cause a lot of confusion um, really they encompass four documents the standards so the overarching sort of um, guidance on it the appendixes pest control, health and safety, and then a, a range of supporting documents, um, which at the moment I recognise are actually quite acute focused. However, there are going to be some primary care ones launched and I have received a draft copy of the primary care ones and they, I can promise you when they're going to be officially launched, they're going to make much more sense than what's currently um, online and available to you guys at the moment. So what are the expectations for primary care? And I think I think this this is the bit that um, everybody gets um, quite worried about, um, that it is a huge document. It feels incredibly overwhelming. And I know myself, bear in mind, I'm an infection French control specialist nurse. I have been for far too many years now. And I sit with an integrated care board. I found them overwhelming when I first started reading them. It felt like these were massive. There's so much to do. I don't understand it. The language is a bit complex and convoluted. Um, But actually, when I started breaking it down, and in particular, when in BSW, when we did our webinar for these back back in March this year, and I started really getting into it, actually, it started to make a little bit more sense. Um, And really they apply to every healthcare setting. And I have sought clarification from our NHS England leads, which is Emma Brooks and Philip Shelley, who um, are leading on the implementation of this across health health and social care. Um, and they do apply to primary care and they're to commence implementation from November 2022. The good news is there's going to be a webinar on this for primary care at the end of October 2022. And as soon as I've got the webinar link for that, I'll make sure that is shared with colleagues on the call so that I can go out to you guys to attend and the new appendixes specifically to support primary care and our ambulance trusts are going to be launched at the end of October for you guys to then start implementing that within the November period and moving forward from that. Um, I know many people have already started implementing it which is absolutely brilliant um, but really you can start implementation really for November and it would be recommended that you start gearing up yourselves to begin that implementation process in November. So a little bit on the star ratings, um, why they are there, it's really important to remember that you need six months worth of auditing to be able to display a star rating. CQC aren't looking for GP practices to display a star rating and my recommendation as a 
IPCICB lead. That's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Um, would be that um, in line with the CQC, we don't expect you to display it. However, if you were looking for that outstanding star at CQC, I would display your star rating. So if you think star and star, and that's the way I kind of move forward, and, and maybe that's um, just a little bit simplistic of me, but I think, uh, you know, if you're looking for the outstanding rating with CQC, aim to display your star rating. But as I said, you need about six months worth of auditing to understand what your star rating is going to be. So there's a few different elements to the new clean, cleanliness um, guidance, really. And the first part is the cleanliness charter. So the Cleanliness Charter sets out what an organisation's commitment um, is really to the guidance and to consistently ensuring that the cleaning and decontamination practices uh, and the appearance of the um, organisation is of a high standard. Um, and what that does really is you use your functional risk categories. So if you have FR2, FR3s, FR6s, whatever they may be, depending on what area, and you display this cleanliness charter, it outlines what your commitment is to provide a safe and clean environment for your patients, for your staff as well. I think that's really important. It's as much as about your staff's environment as it is about the patients who are coming through your front door. Um, and committing that and popping that essentially on a wall, on a door, so that it is seen by those who can walk through. So that might be one in your reception area, one down your corridor with your clinic rooms, perhaps one up in the staff room. And um, NHS England have developed these specific primary care um, templates. Um, and um, I've linked them there. And I'm really happy for these slides to be shared afterwards with everybody. And I've linked them there. Um, so I've linked the section on commitment to cleanliness and I've linked the three most common functional room categories we identify within primary care, which is FR2, FR4 and FR6. Um, so I've linked those there. And what you can do, you can edit it with your own logos, contact details, any specific you know, specifics for your practice, nuances around your practice. And, and you can uh, do that. So that's done for you. So you don't have to worry about doing lovely, fancy posters um, or anything like that you just have to worry about making sure that you've got the logo and a bit just adjusted slightly to what your organizational um, needs and what it looks like the next part then is cleaning responsibilities and a lot of you probably already have something within your practices that looks like this that sets out essentially who is responsible for cleaning what so your housekeeping team or your cleaning team might be responsible for ensuring um, that things like the reception area the um, patient lose the staff lose um, the general cleaning and decontamination of clinic rooms um they might be responsible for that every evening or, you know, however frequent they need doing. And then things like specific pieces of equipment, for example, your spirometry machine or your blood pressure machine might be done by your nursing and HCA team. And then individual pieces of equipment for otoscopes or things like that might be down to individual clinicians and, and GPs cleaning. So you probably already have a cleaning responsibilities framework within your practice. And it's just a case of going back and reviewing that. Um, again, I've popped a link in the bottom of the slides and um, you can click it and you can use this template if you wish. You don't have to. If you've already got something, you can absolutely use your own responsibilities framework if you already have that. Um, or if it's just a list and you want to pop it into a nice, neat table, again, just use 
template that they have provided uh, and it's that and actually a lot of the time on the template they've provided already lists a lot of things that you already have in the practice and you already need to do um, so it's there the key thing with this with the cleaning responsibilities is, is the governance and, and this is a really key point it's something that CQC are really keen on at the moment and that's ensure that everybody knows what their cleaning responsibilities are and my recommendation is that when you've got new people starting include it in your induction checklists um, if you've got team meetings or regular practice meetings to have it perhaps underneath your infection prevention control standing agenda item or have it as standing agenda item for a little while around the new cleaning standards as you start to implement them so that everybody knows what the responsibilities are and who, who does what as well so they know if if perhaps the kitchen in the practice isn't looking too sparkly who's responsible for cleaning that who can they escalate that to as well so it's a very practical way of approaching it as well cleaning frequencies again you probably already have something that looks really similar to this within your practice so it might be a list that outlines that you know you change your curtains every six months. Your spirometry machine is cleaned after each use. The um, storeroom is, is, you know, does has an annual big deep clean or something like that. You know, you may already have something that looks like it. And again, you don't have to use the appendix template they have, although it is really handy, handy and does set out, you know, lots of things we already have in in primary care. Um, but um, you, you can absolutely use what you've already got and adjust it according to what your functional room status is if that has changed slightly um you know there's no national set amount of cleaning frequencies either and and it's completely down to yourselves how often they should be cleaned and dependent on your resources as well um the sort of they do recommend within the guidance or recommended cleaning frequencies and i think that's always a really good starter for 10 and you might want to increase that if you've got a reception area that sees a lot of high traffic, for example, and you have that down for maybe, you know, sort of once every two days or something like that, you might, or they have it down for once every two days, whatever it is, you might want to go, do you know what, actually, I see a lot of traffic coming through that front door in my reception area. It is autumn, everyone's bringing in mud and leaves and Lord knows what else with them. And actually, I need to increase that to daily or maybe even twice a day just to make sure that we're kept it's kept on top of it so again it's based on what your needs are as well um but as i said they have a really good template um go and have a look at it and it, it kind of recommends what the cleaning frequencies are and what you can do is keep reevaluating that so every time you do an audit on that particular area perhaps reevaluate actually is this frequency that we are cleaning this area is it too much is it too little or is it just right it's, it's a so um, that's something you can continually do as well and continually review when you're doing your audits. And again, new guidance is always released. And I know in BSW, I do an IPC newsletter and things go out via the, via the GP bulletin. Um, but just link in with your integrated care board lead um, in your area um, to make sure you've got that most up-to-date guidance. So I think this is one of the things that, Certainly, it took me a little while to get my head around it. Um, uh, uh, maybe that's just me. Um, but I think this is one of the things I get the most amount of queries about, for sure, um, from BSW. Um, and it's really, you know, what, you know, what, 
what should this room be in terms of the functional risk category um, and how should we go about it and, uh, and that kind of thing. So the functional risk category, and this is what I really like about these new cleaning standards, is it takes a really pragmatic approach compared to the 2007 standards in that it's based on the level of risk associated with that room's function. So, um, for example, if I take an FR1, so functional room one, so I wouldn't expect that to be in primary care at all, but that's essentially an operating theatre. So that requires a higher level of cleaning and decontamination and a cleanliness standard. And, and rightly so, in comparison to a functional room category six, which could be things like a storeroom. So you can see there, obviously, where's the higher risk? It's to that patient who's on that operating table. So absolutely, we want that to be of the highest standard possible. Whereas function room six, where's the infection control risk there? It is really, really minimal. It's a storeroom. We're not using it for patient care. We're not using it for staff gatherings. Um, we're not using it to see patients in. So, so that's what I really like about these standards is it takes the hierarchy of risk basically, into these new standards. Whereas before the 2007 standards were very much broad brush, this is what you need to do and, and it covers everything. So this is taking a bit more of a pragmatic approach based on the, in, the risk to, to staff and to patients within that area. So one of the first steps I would say in implementing the standards is to understand what your functional risks are for each of your rooms within, um, within your practice. Usually within primary care, we see FR2, so functional risk category two, functional risk category four, and functional risk category six. Um, and each of those functional rooms then has an audit score they need to achieve. Um, so functional room two is it must score 95% when you do your audits. Functional room four is 85%. A functional room six is 75 percent it also says how frequently you should audit as well and they have different audits audit frequencies so an fr1 is going to have a higher audit frequency you're going to be doing an audit more often compared to fr6 where you're going to be doing it a lot less frequently um, and again that's just based on the level of risk you know um and, and how we approach it. So as I said, a majority of rooms of primary care, they're going to be FR2s, FR4s, and FR6s. Um, this is, I hope, hopefully you can kind of see it. I'm sorry, the writing is a little bit small on there um, and it probably doesn't translate very well in sharing the document. But um, this is some of the, the, this has come from some of the draft um, appendixes that I've seen for primary care specifically. So um, kind of recommends, um, what um, your um, sort of room assignment should be for different areas. So you can see, you know, your FR6, your storerooms, your administration offices, medical records office, education rooms. Um, and then you've got things like, you know, your FR5s, you might have some of those cleaning cupboards, entrance receptions, FR4s, your baby clinics, your general outpatient, your consultancy rooms, waiting areas. And then you've got FR2. So if you've got minor surgery going on within your practice um, and we, or you undertake invasive procedures, um, it's probably going to be an FR2. Now, just to throw a spanner in the works, you can take a blended approach. And I probably don't have enough time to go through a blended approach here. But if anybody is interested, I am more than happy for you to reach out to myself or to go to your ICB lead and they will walk through what a blended approach is. It's essentially taking um, kind of 
two of the FR categories and kind of amalgamating them to come out with its own audit score and risk score, essentially. Um, and it is a little bit complex. And um, I do find it a little bit mind-blowing because I have to be very slow and, and very um, concise when I'm trying to talk about it. So if you are considering that, just, just reach out and, and let me let me know. And, and I'm more than happy to go through it and come up with something um, with people if, if that's um, helpful for anybody. So once you've done your FR, allocation and your cleanliness charters, you've worked out how frequently things need to be cleaned and who's responsible for cleaning them. You get into the nitty gritty of the auditing and monitoring. So like with anything, how do you know you improved? How do you know you're achieving the standard you have set out in your policies and procedures is ultimately through auditing. Um, and that goes for things, you know, everything is in it. hand hygiene. How do we know people are uh, adhering to our hand hygiene policy? Um, so it, it really is providing you with insurance, but also providing external people with assurance that you are um, a safe, you know, clean, you know, your cleaning standards are good, you're decontaminating appropriately as well. So people like CQC or NHS England, or indeed, if I happen to rock up and knock on your door one day as well. So again, like with any audit, and I'm teaching all to suck eggs when I talk about audits, um, but it and underpins our policies, procedures and our standards to, again, and it helps drive continuous improvement um, within the practice. Um, so there's three audits associated with the new cleaning standards. And this kind of feels where it's a lot of work uh, and can feel a bit overwhelming. And I'm absolutely with you on that. So the first one you've got is the technical audit. So this checks and scores cleaning outcomes against the safe standard. Um, and we've got a template for that, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, and if anybody doesn't have a copy of the template, we've got a very specific GP one that we've done in BSW. So if you need that, just give me a shout. I'm more than happy to share that. Um, and that just checks that your rooms your functional rooms checks off that everything's in order and you might score 95% if it's at FR2, but you might score under that and it might be 90%, in which case it's generated some actions. So always make sure if something's an audit has generated actions to correct it, to improve it, that you have an action plan. And if um, anybody wants an action plan template, again, I'm more than happy um, to share that. It's a really broad brush one. And those of you in BSW know, you've known me for a while, will know that, um, you're probably sick of me talking about action plans because I love an action plan. Um, then you've got an efficacy audit. So efficacy audit, essentially making sure the cleaning process at the point it's done is correct. So things like, and everybody probably has this on the back of their cleaning, cupboard doors, yeah, are we colour coding it correctly? Red mops, yellow mops, green, blue. Um, is the equipment correct? You know, we're not leaving things like made up bottles of disinfectant that should only be open, used for 24 hours. They're not there a week later. Have you got the correct materials? Um, are we doing it in the right way? Um, and of course, have we got supporting policies and procedures? And some of that might be with an external cleaning company. So it's about checking in with them as well and assuring yourselves if you do have an external cleaning company that comes in to support your practice, that they're doing the right thing for you, you your staff and your patients to ensure that it's a safe and clean environment. And then number three, you've got an external audit. So that is essentially where it's checking that the technical audit and efficacy audit, what you've scored it, somebody else external comes in and you get the same scores. So you know, you know that actually that's really accurate. Um, and um, you can um, 
do that within your PCN. So it might be that you do this five practices within your PCN and two at various leading on implemented clinical standards, whether it's um, practice manager, your IPC lead nurse. So, um, Zoe, I'm going to use you as an example. I'm sorry, because um, I can see you. So, um, Zoe, over at Salisbury Medical Practice, um, you might go and do the orchard um, uh, external audit, and the orchard might come and do yours at um, Salisbury Medical Practice. Equally, you know, I'm I'm more than happy to be approached to support those um, um, if I have, you know, um, capacity to do so. Um, and or equally, you could get um, somebody from your cleaning company who doesn't do the cleaning within your practice to do the external audit. Um, uh, and that's essentially it in a nutshell, really. Um, it's those sort of four key areas to look at um, and to implement. And it's not too dissimilar from what you're probably already doing it. It's just perhaps putting it down in a little bit more of a, a methodical uh, and um, kind of um, audit trail way, really. Um, what I've done as well on, on the last slide, and again, um, hopefully um, this will be circulated, I've linked everything I've talked about, all the primary care documents and everything else as well um, that I've gone through that are specific to primary care. In BSW, we did do a webinar back in March, which I had some really good feedback on from, from BSW colleagues. Um, so if anybody would like a copy of that webinar as well, please feel free to reach out to me and I'm more than happy to share that. I'm not precious about anything that I create or, or share at all. Um, so um, yeah, that was a real whistle-stop tour and the absolute, what I call Billy Bookcase Basics of the NHS cleanliness standards. So if you want a little bit more information, um, please do reach out to your Integrated Care Board, IPC leads or, or to myself. Um, and um, I think that's it. And I'm happy to take queries, questions, um, and hopefully I'll be able to um, answer them. Thank you, Connie. That was really, really helpful. Yeah. And if you just stop sharing your screen now, that'd be fantastic. Lovely. You mentioned um, a GP audit that you shared with some practices. I think, yes, please, if you could share that with us. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're happy, yes, please, we will put that on as one of the resources of, for this um, for this. Um, webinar people to see. Um, I, I just want to ask Michelle to come in now because we've just had conversations about um, the BMA's view. And as I said before, we were going to talk about what you have to do and the timescales and, and all that discussion. So Michelle, I'm just going to draw you into the discussion now, if that's okay. Thanks, Louise. And thanks, Connie. That was a really useful um, presentation, um, which I'm sure practices will find helpful. I think, as um, Louise has said, we have approached the BMA and we're sharing the details of uh, the cleanliness standards with them. I think the key question that they're asking is around regulation and where does this apply to if within the general practice regulations? Um, and I think from our understanding, it's a Health and Social Care Act, but we're going to share that with the BMA and seek their advice around um, what practices need to do in relation to this and as soon as we have any more detail we'll share that with practices and also yourself Connie so yeah thank you I think absolutely NHS England have said yep please do these apply to primary care please do implement it It would be my strong recommendation to implement it because it provides you as a practice a level of assurance around that code of practice and the health and social care act to provide safe and clean care and that's the that's the line from the code of practice it's around providing safe, safe and clean care and i do feel it's a, it's a bit more of a pragmatic and risk-based approach this is where we're moving to with infection prevention control um, but recognizing they are an absolute beast 
to get to grips with and um, feel incredibly overwhelming, uh, which is where your integrated care board leads, like myself, can come in and help you and make sense of it and go through things through it. And I can't I can't speak for my colleagues um, in the other areas, but certainly for me and, and Zoe will know I have an open a virtual open door policy and, and an email. So just just drop us a line. We're more than happy to help where we can to um, support practices and implementing these new standards. Thank you, Connie. And we've so we've also been asked in one of the questions for the action plan template as well, please, if you don't mind sending that through. I think just to, um, for the audience, it's important we have talked to CQC and we have asked them about um, what their view is of this. And I, I think the, the view was they're sort of watching and waiting. Um, I think would that be fair, Michelle and Dawn, to see that that's sort of where they're coming from at the moment? Absolutely. Yeah, I think they're watching and waiting. So again, as soon as we know, we will let you know. So this is really a heads up more than anything else at the moment. Um, and I think we've got one um, question coming in about contract cleaners. I don't know whether Zoe would be really interested to hear your um, take on this as well as a, as a nurse working at, currently in the practices. So um, the question for the practice manager is you've got contract cleaners, which are, they're, they're actually very good, but nowhere near what I aspire to, said the practice manager. Is there some support from the ICB to, do, to help with a management of contractors to get them up to scratch um, some of these particular contractors she's talking about service quite a few surgeries. I think it feels like there's obviously some that the, um, and I'm not sure about this, so you can help me with this, some that the practice um, managers will ask um, a contract cleaner to, to do. And there's some that there's some obviously areas that the nurses are going to do. And so there's obviously a balance in between. And how can you get your cleaners up to scratch? So I don't know whether, first of all, Connie, ICB, can you would you speak directly to um, contract cleaning companies? So what I would say is uh, I don't really know the answer to this. What okay. we can do is we can support you in outlining what the new cleaning standards are, why they're important to implement and how they can be implemented. We can absolutely support with that. Ultimately, the contract is between yourselves as a GP practice and that cleaning company, not with the ICB. So we haven't got that, say, from want of a better way of saying it, the commissioning kind of presence um, that yourselves as a practice would have. But what we can absolutely do is support around these are the new cleaning standards this is where we need to be to deliver safe and clean care. This is what it looks like. Um, and this is what we this is what we would expect. Um, and I would expect that even if we were still operating on the new 2007 guidance, if they if they weren't up to, you know, where they should be, even with that, having those conversations. And I think it's about reaching out to ourselves within the integrated care board to say, well, what does good look like? What should they be doing? Um, and what can I go back to them with that list? Or, you know, um, I know I had one or two of the cleaning contractors for primary care on the webinar back in March. You know, if, if we've got a webinar opening up to your cleaning contractors and your cleaning teams to come along, so they gain an understanding of that as well. But absolutely, as I see, we can support you in saying, this is what it is. This is where we need to be. This is where the gap is at the moment. How do we get there together? Great. Um so I'm interested to know from a practical point of view, um, what are you thinking about doing this within your practice? What is the practice responsibility? What is the nursing responsibility? Just Can you just take me through what what's the thought process at the moment in your practice? Yeah, I think um, Connie's covered most of it in regards to it. It's actually, uh, we're having a, trying to get a meeting with our cleaning company to actually clarify responsibilities. And I think that's really important to obviously get the, the charter up and running. Um, and then obviously also involving perhaps in the audit process. So um, cleaning companies tend to do their own audits, um, but actually 
having maybe that joint walk around to have that agreed understanding of what you expect um, in terms of those cleanliness standards. And does this feel like, um, if if it felt like this was going to have to come in, is this a huge amount more work, Zoe, do you think, for the nurses? I think like Connie's pointed out, I think most of it is stuff that we already should have in place. Okay. Um, and I think it's more um, giving that audit trail and, and doing those audits and having those action plans rather than suggesting we know that we're going to do something about it. But if you've got it in an action plan and you've got a time frame um, and it just shows um, that that journey, if you like, and you if you were questioned by CQC, um, you could say that we know this is a problem and this is what we're doing about it. And it's all about writing it down, isn't it? Having the having the evidence that, and I think there was an example, Connie, that you shared with um, with Zoe and I yesterday about it, it's this crack in the floor, and you know it's there. CQC spotted it. So yes, we know it's there. We've asked the landlord, and this is the this is the evidence and the document trail for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's like governance. It's like governance piece that really underpin a lot of these standards moving forward. It is that yeah, we know that we're doing something about it, or we only scored seventy percent. Actually, here's the actions that to get us up to ninety five percent, and actually charting that progress. And it also makes you feel really good when you start seeing lots of green instead of red on a, on an action plan. But maybe that's just me and my simple view. Um, I do I do like to rag rate things, but um, yeah, it's absolutely about that governance process and that audit trail is really really key um, to providing assurance for yourselves and for your staff that it's a clean and safe environment and that your citizens who are a largely very vulnerable population um, are are safe within your within your practice. Thank you, Connie. And just to sort of emphasise that we've actually, we this obviously is going to be, is, is being recorded now. And so if you wanted to share this webinar or this part of the webinar with your cleaning company, there's no problem in that at all. There's nothing we're saying is is, 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 um, is secret. And we're trying, we are as open and transparent as we possibly can be. So do please use that if you want to. Um, Michelle, you wanted to come in. It was just to say the same thing, actually, because let's say we're recording this on our website. But I did wonder if there might be because we've given there's been quite an overview. And if, you know, once we get through the regulations that this is something that absolutely has to be done, which I think we're pretty clear that we're there, we're already there, um, whether we could record something with a bit more detail around audits, et cetera, that then could be shared with the cleaning companies. I wonder if that's and actually nursing and any members of the team. Um, I just wonder if that might be something we could look at. And I know that um, Zoe's working with Connie, but other ICB um, infection control leads. Sorry, I nearly got my letters around the wrong way there. Um, so I just wonder if we potentially could look at recording something that could then be shared wider potentially. And that's a good idea. Thank you, Connie. That has been so useful, so practical and um, very, very handy. So we'll go on to flu now. But if I just say thank you very much, Connie, and no doubt we'll back in, be back in touch. So another big topic, um, flu, it comes seems to come around so quickly, doesn't it? Um, I think that Dawn, you're just going to share a few sort of top, top sort of headlines with us, and then we're very happy to take questions from the floor about flu for this season. So um, over to you, Dawn. Yes, thank you, Louise. As you say, here we are again um, with increasing regularity. So yes, this year for the season that is now upon us for the flu vaccination, uh, we have produced our top tips um, as we've done previously. Um, and that's on our website. Uh, in fact, you can find it on the home page at the moment under the Hot Topics banner if you want to go and take a look. There's one or two really useful uh, posters that public health produced last year they haven't actually updated and done new ones 
yet this year, but as soon as it, uh, new updates come along, we will update the top tips again through the season as we have done previously. There is just a couple of things I would like to mention today um, as a little reminder. <clears throat> Quite possibly you do already know and realise in the enhanced service this year, unfortunately and disappointingly, it has reverted to the uh, pre-pandemic employer occupational health responsibility for your staff. Practice staff are not eligible under the enhanced service to have the vaccination. If you have got any staff who are in an at-risk group or in actual fact are over the age of 50 now, um, they can, of course, go to their own GP practice and then as a patient have the uh, vaccination under the enhanced service that way. For your other staff, they are, as we said, um, the employer's responsibility. Um, and I would advise, as we have done previously, go and check with your MDO and see if you've got cover. Perhaps some of your GPs are covered, quite possibly, to actually give um, flu vaccinations um, to staff um, as an occupational health activity. Um, and obviously, if you can, that's great. But remember, you cannot claim on FP34 for those vaccines that you do use um, to administer to your staff for occupational health purposes. Um, the other... Um, new variation this year in the enhanced service is that practices can now work within their PCN groupings uh, to deliver the flu vaccination program if they are already uh, within a PCN grouping to deliver the COVID-19 vaccination program as well. Um, there is some or plenty of detail around that um, in the enhanced service uh, document. We've got some obviously included within the top tips. Um, if you are going to work collaboratively, you do need an agreement in place and NHS England have provided a template for this. Um, the other thing uh, I think worth mentioning, because we have already been asked the question, if practices do vaccinate the healthy 50 to 64 year old cohort before the 15th of October, which is the date when they are effectively eligible for it, uh, if they are vaccinated before the 15th of October, uh, will the practice actually be paid for it? Um, we have already engaged with public health about this and they are already gone to the National Flu Ops team about it. So as soon as we have the answer to that, we will um, obviously update you via our usual channels. Um, I think in the interim, um, I would say... Uh, yeah, approach with caution. Um, we have seen previously that anybody who is vaccinated outside of a time frame in a cohort can sometimes cause a bit of a, a hiccup when it comes to claiming, um, which then might mean that your claims are paid late, possibly if there's got to be some manual checks done. So the 50 to 64 year olds who are well, please be careful uh, and don't vaccinate them before the 15th of October at this, this time. Um, until unless we hear any differently. So those are the sort of little headlines uh, for now, Louise. I don't know Thank if there you. are any questions. Yes, one's just come in. Um, we class all of our team as patient facing the same way we did with regards to wearing masks as they walk through the waiting room, meet patients in the car park, etc. So the practice manager was planning to class them all as patient facing for flu vaccine purposes too. Are you now saying this is incorrect? No, we're not saying it's incorrect, but unfortunately, the enhanced service um, and the annual flu letter was very clear, I'm afraid. And it is disappointing that practice staff are employer, 
responsibility under occupational health. Um, there is a section that mentions about frontline healthcare staff, absolutely. Um, but further on in the document, it does clarify, I'm afraid, that um, who those frontline staff are, and they are around the um, adult social care um, I can't remember the actual wording for it, but we can, it's in the top tips, most certainly. And um, so, yes, no, you're absolutely right. They are front frontline facing, but the enhanced service is very clear, I'm afraid, that um, practice staff at this point in time are the employer occupational health responsibility. Um, just another question is coming in. Pharmacies are offering flu vaccines to healthy 50 to 64 year olds from now, so already, Please ensure it's not one rule for us and one rule for them. Please, can you help? And they clarify there's actually sort of well-known pharmaceutical companies that are already doing this, and it feels like that is grossly unfair. Yes, Matt. Um, I can see it's Matt that's asked the question. Yeah, Hello there. Hi. Yeah. yeah, we absolutely agree. Um, and actually, um, I am talking to public health about that very subject. Um, we are already in um, communication, so we will do our best with that. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get on to that soon, Matt, because obviously that's very, very timely. Um, as NHS doesn't state NHS staff in the NHS guidance, can we decline to submit the NHS informed staff uptake Form. Well, that's a very good question. And the answer is I don't know straight away, Ben, but actually I will take it away and certainly come back about that. OK, um, thank you. That was helpful. Um, if a clinician vaccinates a 50 to 64 year old, they can add the needs influenza code as they deem it appropriate. This will ensure payment. Oh, I think I see what he said. But you're you're basically saying they're in a different cohort. The only thing I would say is um, to, to be a little bit cautious again with that. In the enhanced service, there is a little footnote that says um, that they give all the uh, cohorts, but actually it does say that you'll only be paid for the ones that are named within the cohorts. Um, so I, I'd still be a little bit cautious. We will continue to clarify and continue to try and get a level playing field with the pharmacies um, and come back to you on that. I just wanted to just bring Zoe in. Zoe, is there anything in the practice that the nurses are concerned about? We've probably still got some nurses on the call or is everything just going into sort of a well-oiled machine about how you just get your flus out, out and, and um, out to people at the moment? I would say um, everything seems pretty much on um, par with last year. Um, I would say from a nursing team or, or clinician perspective, um, the UK Health and Security Agency's um, information for healthcare practitioners for this flu season is, is available. And um, that is like a, a really good Bible guide to any sort of questions, queries. Um, there's a common issue section in there, which takes everything from allergies to um you know, correct dose, incorrect dose, all of those things. So that's a really good resource. And is that in the top tips or is that something as a, as a line, as a, as a resource we'd like to add as a separate line to this webinar, if it's, if, if, if it's one that you would highlight? Um, at the link to that should be at the end of the top tips. Fine, it's all in there. Okay, lovely. Um, I'm aware of the time. We've, we've, we've just, this is one of the ones that's gone on a little bit long, isn't it? So I think we'll probably leave flu there. I'm sure there are going to be more questions on flu. And just to let anybody know, we do have a couple of spaces left on our introduction to flu courses for HCAs on the 13th and 15th of September. And they're online if anybody is still looking for some training. And um, so just to add that in.
I think we're going to go back to COVID now, Dawn. I haven't talked about COVID for a bit, have we? <laughs> if only it had gone away that easily. Um, yes, absolutely. So, um, again, I'm sure some of you probably will have seen the um, government updated their guidance last week and also within the primary care bulletin there was information to say that the government has now set out plans for COVID-19 testing uh, in periods of low prevalence which they class that as now following advice from um, uh, UKHSA previously public health um, so NHS England have published a letter we do love a letter um, in relation to staff and patient testing um, and basically routine asymptomatic testing in a number of settings will now pause from the 31st of August. So that's from today. Um, and the letter includes a list of scenarios where testing in the NHS should then continue after this date. There are several. Um, <clears throat> So NHS organisations have been asked to review their COVID-19 testing protocols in light of this new guidance and implement changes as required. So basically, symptomatic testing will continue for both patients and staff based on the current list of COVID-19 symptoms. And as we know, they're, they're quite long. But it does then go on to say in the letter, uh, testing will continue in certain scenarios, including outbreak testing in healthcare settings, local healthcare organisations with appropriate advice, including that from medical directors, nursing directors, um, or directors of infection, infection prevention and control, may also exercise local discretion to continue testing for specific individuals or cohorts in line with broader infection uh, prevention control measures. Um, and we kind of feel that actually this is uh, slightly greying this area because in one breath they're saying actually low prevalence don't need to do any asymptomatic testing at the moment. But then it kind of goes on to say, well, locally you might decide otherwise. Um, I think really what you need to do is as a practice or within your PCNs discuss with your local uh, infection prevention control leads. Um, and if you feel that testing does need to continue in line with the letter and some of the scenarios they offer up, then maybe I would um, discuss that with them uh, and, and you might decide then obviously to continue. With regards to where you get the tests, there are no changes, no changes to the existing mechanisms for order, ordering the tests. So that will continue. And there are also no changes to reporting requirements and existing uh, UK HSA guidance on the management of COVID patients. Um, they all remain in place um, with regards to IPC measures. So as ever, not, not quite as clear as we might like. So whilst asymptomatic stops, if essentially you might decide locally otherwise, but you'll need to discuss that in conjunction with your leads. And just a question that's come in, Dawn, where are we on mask wearing at the moment? Ah. So have there been any announcements on mask wearing? It's, it's easier to lose, to lose track of it, isn't it? I, I think the answer with mask wearing, again, that's on local... Um, your local prevalences. I think that's what it actually says in the guidance. Um, look at, and do a local assessment. But I seem to recall um, two, three weeks ago, Zoe might know a little bit better than I here, uh, a letter went out from the uh, ICBs um, to say they did recommend that actually in general practice, uh, mask wearing might still be uh, appropriate because you want to protect your staff and also those coming in are 
probably generally very vulnerable. Zoe, what do you think is happening in the practice at the moment? I believe that the last letter that Dawn's referring to was suggestion that clinicians face-to-face should wear, still be wearing their masks in any, any sort of patient-facing areas. Um, but actually, it was more down to local risk assessments of sort of more the admin rooms and those kind of things. Okay. Good. Lovely. Thank you very much for that. I think we're going to move on to online records now, Michelle, please. Thanks, Louise. So online access to medical records is expected to be implemented in November. Um, And we just wanted to highlight there are some useful resources that are starting to um, be released from NHS England. Um, And what we'll do is we'll pop these links with the podcast um, and all the webinar as we've had some slides today. Um, And these are from the RCGP um, and they've got a toolkit, videos um, and learning has been also released from the early adopter sites, which is useful to be aware of. Um, There is also um, a GP practice readiness checklist, which I think Louise is going to share on the screen. Um, It was really just to highlight that this looks like a really useful document. I think it's a couple of pages long, so short and sweet, and talks you through all the things that you need to think about when getting um, ready to uh, switch on online access. Um, And it was really just to highlight this. Now, we did click on the link this morning and unfortunately the page is down. So it takes you to NHS Digital, then on to um, NHS Futures. But um, hopefully this will be republished and maybe we could put the actual document on our website as opposed to the link. I don't know if we're allowed to or not. Because I know um, if it's on NHS Futures, they like to um, version control it. So, uh, but it is very useful and worth being aware of. Um, I think I just wanted to hand over to Louise. So we are um, offering some webinars on this topic, which Louise is going to talk a bit about. Yes, we've had quite a bit and we will carry on doing more with this. But just one thing I wanted to highlight, we've got the Fundamentals of Information Governance come up the 22nd of September. New practice managers, reception, admin staff, really useful. We've got lots of recorded information also. And we've got a lunch and learn if you wanted to take your staff through what to be careful of. Um, but we will do more and more as, um, as time goes on um, for that. Um, so just a question has come in, Michelle. Still lots of unanswered questions that NHS England acknowledged on recent webinars, no clarification. Can AMC highlight this with NHS England as these are big changes and need clarifying? Absolutely. I know that um, Dawn, you dialed into an NHS England webinar um, and I know that colleagues are going to do the same. So, And also it, we've, we would raise it with the BMA too because obviously they um, speak with NHS England. So we'll do, we'll do those too. Thank you, Michelle. Um, I think you're going to carry on now with um, suspended and deceased um, patient records. I am. So on the last practice manager webinar, I talked a bit about both of these, but just wanted to be clear because they are separate, similar, but separate. So for deceased patient records, practices are no longer required to print out the electronic record when returning the deceased patient's Lloyd George envelope to PCSE. Um, But where a practice closes, any deceased patient records from the 1st of August um, this year will need to be re- will need to be printed and returned to PCSE with the Lloyd George envelope. So that's only in the instance where a practice closes. So for suspended patient records, so this means that there is that the patient isn't registering elsewhere. So it could be patients who are in prison for longer than two years, patients who move abroad, or patients who move to Wales, Scotland, or Northern Ireland. Just wanted to highlight the fact that you do need to continue to print the electronic record and return to PCSE um, 
which is slightly, obviously they're two different scenarios with slightly different outcomes, but just wanted to be clear around deceased patients um, records and suspended patient records. And I think we actually had that question around um, if they're moving to Wales or Scotland and um, what you need to do. So you do need to continue to print the electronic patient record for those. Thanks, Michelle. Useful clarification. Um, Dawn, I think you're going to come in with something quickly about um, cervical smear rejections. Uh, yes, thank you, Louise. Just very quickly, um, we do understand that sometimes cervical smears are obviously are rejected by labs for a number of reasons. However, it has been found that 25% of women whose sample is rejected, they worryingly do not return for that follow-up smear test. Um, and whilst rejections, as we know, can be for a number of reasons, some are rejected due to them being taken at the wrong interval time. Uh, for example, perhaps they come back at 11 weeks and not 12. Um, and, and we realise that might be only a, a very small time frame. However, labs, unfortunately, they don't like having to reject on that basis, but they do have to work within the guidelines. And so this is a gentle reminder, please, to check if the test is actually due. Um, we do also uh, understand, we've heard anecdotally, that some of this may be a consequence of staff not being able to access Open Exeter. Um, so please, if you can check your login and contact your local administrator if you have any problems so that you can check those due dates. Thank you very much. That was that was it really for Lovely. that one. Thank you, Dawn. And I think finally, um, Michelle, you're going to talk about trust registers. Another sort of heads up situation, I think, isn't it? That's right, Louise. So I don't know if some of you may have heard of it. So it's called the, the Trust Register. And um, we've only recently become aware of this in the last few days that there is a deadline associated with this of the 1st of September, uh, so which is tomorrow. First of all, please don't panic. I'm going to go on to give a bit more detail around what it means. Interestingly, I've tried to find a simple definition of what the Trust Register is. I um, haven't been successful, unfortunately. And it doesn't just apply to what you think with the, the wording of trust. It doesn't just apply to acute trust. There potentially is an impact for practices, PCNs and federations as well. So one thing to highlight, DR solicitors have done a really useful blog um, on this topic, which we will include the link with this webinar and podcast onto our website and would um, encourage practices to have a look at this. And we would also um, suggest you talk to your accountants as well. So I think just to highlight, the trust register was something that was introduced in 2017, and it didn't require registration at that point for those trusts who didn't pay tax. However, there's been new rules introduced in October 2020, which link to the anti-money anti laundering and counter-terrorism terrorism measures that extended the scope of this. And there is a deadline, as I've mentioned, of tomorrow. However, as DR solicitors reference in their uh, blog, it's actually really complex and HMRC have only recently issued guidance on this topic. Um, DR solicitors in their blog have uh, identified three examples of where potentially primary care could be impacted on this. So what it's suggesting um, what we would suggest you do is to have a look at the DR solicitor's log. I think the main concern is that there are financial and criminal penalties for failing to register. Again, please don't panic about this. As I've said, there are some that DR solicitor's got some really good information and information that's also been released by the Chartered Accountants in England of Wales states, given that this is so new, there is recognition of that fact and that many new trustees won't be aware that this is required and therefore there'll be no penalties for the first offence of failure to register or a late registration of a trust. So 
please not to worry. Please don't panic. We are seeking more information um, and we'll share it with practices as soon as we've got it. There'll be some information going out in our PM news, um, in our newsletter this week, not our PM newsletter, our general newsletter letter but it was really just to highlight the fact that you might see this start um, information start flowing to you but uh, we're on the case and we'll get some information out shortly. Lovely thanks Michelle and just something helpful that Fiona's popped in spoke with our accountant yesterday they said we need to talk to a solicitor for advice but would help with the registration so it's a little bit of legal and financial help. um, Thank you Fiona that's useful. So I think we've come to um, the end of, of, of a busy hour. Um, so just let you know, we'll be back on the 14th of September um, as of with our, our normal um, practice manager update. A um, couple of courses coming up. We've got a safer recruitment course, which is great for a, any HR managers out there or practice managers that do the HR 29th of September and maximising PCSE claims for drugs income on the 4th of October. So they're just two things with with some spaces coming up. Um, And I would just like to thank very much Connie um, to went through the cleanliness standards with us, which was really, really helpful. Thank you to Zoe, Dawn and Michelle. Thank you to all of you who've been with us and um, we'll look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. Wessex LMCs, supporting you and your practice.